Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 18, the book of Revelation, chapters 7 and 8. Well, you ready for some revelation? All right. Last week we ended Revelation 7 with a discussion about who the people in heaven dressed in white robes were. That is the question that was asked of John by one of the heavenly elders. And John answered, saying effectively he didn't know. But obviously the elder who asked him that question did. And the elder responded with what we read in Revelation 7.14. And in the complete Jewish Bible... It reads, these are the people who have come out of the Great Persecution. That's capital G, Great, capital P, Persecution, making it the name of an event. Various other English Bible translations treat this verse slightly differently. The King James Version says the people came out of Great Tribulation, not out of the Great Tribulation. The NAB says the people survived the time of great distress. The NAS says they came out of the Great Tribulation, but little g great, little t tribulation, meaning it's not the name of an event. Each one of these somewhat different interpretations reflects a doctrinal belief that is held by the translator. While three of these translations are similar, notice how the NAB goes so far as to say that these people dressed in the white robes did not die during this great tribulation. Rather, they were survivors. I must stress, however, that that interpretation is an outlier. It doesn't agree with the original Greek, and I haven't found it anywhere else. Now we also looked at what the early church fathers thought about the identity of these people in their white robes. And we particularly focused on Primatius of the mid-500s AD, at least partly because he leaned heavily on the Revelation commentary of Tychonius, who wrote his in the mid-300s AD. And the bottom line was, that as far as they were concerned, these people were a conglomerate of believers who died at some point during a time when human evil was running amok on a scale the world has never before experienced. That is, while some of the believers died as martyrs for their faith, others died for various other causes such as disease or age. They included people of weak and strong faith, and even people who had fallen away. But because of the tremendous persecutions and the generally hopeless condition of society, they came back to Christ. I agree with Primatius, because the statement made to John by the elder in heaven is just too broad to attach any specificity to it. Certainly, these academics and these laymen who have strongly developed 
end times doctrines such as the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine that was created by John Darby in the early 1800s they read their point of view into these vague words I suggest that it's better that we take the wide view that Primatius and and uh, Primatius rather and Tychonius adopted 1500 years ago now the last words of Revelation 7.14 that concludes the identity of those dressed in the white robes is that they have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. Now if we take this fully literally then we'd have to scratch our heads because if we dip a garment into a vat of blood it's going to come out anything but white. Some commentators take this statement to indicate martyrdom. However, it's not the blood of the believer who is being credited with making his robe white. It's the blood of Christ. So essentially, the term blood of the Lamb is an expression. It refers to Yeshua's death on the cross as, and, and it means atonement and purification for all of God's worshipers. So let's conclude chapter 7 by reading verses 15 through 17. Open your Bibles to chapter 7. We're just going to look at the last couple of verses before we move into chapter 8. That is on page 1540 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1540. Revelation chapter 7 starting at verse 15. That is why they are before God's throne. Day and night they serve him in his temple. And the one who sits on the throne will put his Shekinah upon them. They will never again be hungry, never again be thirsty. The sun will not beat down on them, nor will any burning heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now, concerning those in white robes. The few words to begin verse 15 are telling it. It says, that is why they are before God's throne. That is why. Those dressed in white robes are before God's throne in heaven for two reasons. First, they died. So their souls are in heaven. But second, they have been purified through Christ's sacrifice. So the distinction being made about this particular group of believers is that they died during a period of great, tremendous tribulation on earth. However, the distinction that's being made is only about the timing of their arrival in heaven, not the way that they merit being allowed into heaven. All believers will arrive in heaven upon our death. All believers will stand before God's throne whether we die in a time of peace or a time of tribulation. And whether after living a full lifespan or experiencing an early death by any means. Now notice something interesting here. We shouldn't just dismiss it as just a figure of speech. The next words of verse 15 are, Day and night they serve him in his temple. 
Certainly since the scene is in heaven, there's no such thing as day and night. And there's nothing like a physical temple there. Rather, this is meant to draw us towards remembering how important are the earthly temple, its Levite priests, and all those daily rituals that occur there. However, those are just physical shadows of a spiritual, heavenly ideal and reality. I mean, I guarantee you that while this flies right over the heads of most Gentile Christians of nearly every era, the mental picture of the Jerusalem temple and its operation, that was the first thing to enter John's mind when he saw this vision and to enter the minds of the Jewish Yeshua followers in John's time who read and heard about John's visions. For example, we've previously discussed how clearly those 24 elders surrounding God's throne were Levite priests, but they had become believers. Even the description of God and His throne, those were directly tied to the high priest's breastplate and to the 12 tribes of Israel and especially to Yeshua's own tribe, Judah. And even the constant terminology about what we're witnessing going on in heaven that speaks of a temple, of altars, golden bowls, musical instruments, is all meant to remind us of these crucial duties performed in the Jerusalem temple on behalf of God's people. So back in verse 9, we saw how a huge crowd of believers from every race and language and nation were waving palm branches. And this, of course, is the central feature of the Feast of Tabernacles, of Sukkot. And now, when we get a literal translation of the final words of Revelation 7.15, we read this. I'm going to use what's called Young's um, literal translation Bible for this. It says, Because of this, they are before the throne of God, and they do service to Him day and night in His sanctuary, and He who is sitting upon the throne shall tabernacle over them. That's the literal translation. Whereas the complete Jewish Bible has taken great liberties with the text in order to say, and the one who sits on the throne will put his Shekinah over them. That is a poor translation. And it just kind of pulls us away from the intended connection. The Greek word that is in question is skinu. And it decidedly does not mean Shekinah. Rather it means to have one's tabernacle or to dwell in one's tabernacle. So here the matter of the tabernacle, the literal tabernacle, surfaces again and it links us right back to verse 9 that speaks of the palm branches that are so central to the Feast of Tabernacles ritual. And indeed the sukkah, the tabernacle, 
that we are instructed to build and live in during the the, the week-long festival of tabernacles celebration requires us having palm branches in its construction. And it is symbolic of God's supernatural protection. Of this, by the way, Jews have always agreed as far back into antiquity as we can find it. So now, this symbolic protection on earth, symbolized in the Feast of Tabernacles celebration, becomes a permanent reality in heaven for believers. We will live in God's sukkah, God's tabernacle, with Him forever, protected for an eternity. That's what's being talked about here. Now let's take this thought about the Feast of Tabernacles this being represented in John's vision we take it one step further. Verse 16 is an allusion to Isaiah 49.10 and Isaiah 49.10 reads they will neither be hungry nor thirsty neither scorching wind nor sun will strike them for he who has mercy on them will lead them and guide them to springs of water while Revelation 7.16 is not obviously a direct quote of Isaiah 49.10 it's pretty close and as I've taught you in earlier lessons we must never get so focused on the scripture verse that is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament that we lose track of the Old Testament context in which that verse is found. Remember, in Old and New Testament times, there were no such things as chapters and verses. This organization of scripture into chapters and verses for study wouldn't even be invented until many centuries later. So when a Jewish writer in John's era and earlier wanted to bring to mind a specific section of Holy Scripture, he would either quote it or allude to it, but just using a few words from it. Just sufficient enough for the reader or the hearer to identify what portion of scripture he was being guided to. So let's go to that larger section of scripture that John's vision is alluding to. But first, understand that among Jewish sages and scholars, it is agreed that what we are about to read is one of Isaiah's several prophecies about the end times and especially as it involves Israel in the end times. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 10. Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 10 and it reads like this out of the complete Jewish Bible. Coastlands, listen to me. Listen, you peoples far away. Adonai called me from the womb before I was born. He had spoken my name. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword while hiding me in the shadow of his hand. He has made me like a sharpened arrow while concealing me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, 
through whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. Futility. Yet my cause is with Adonai and my reward is with my God. So now Adonai says, He formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, to have Israel gathered to him, so that I will be honored in the sight of Adonai, my God having become my strength. He has said, It's not enough that you are merely my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the offspring of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations so that my salvation can spread to the ends of the earth. Here is what Adonai, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One, says to the one despised, the one whom the nations detest, to the servant of tyrants. When kings see you, They will stand up. Princes, too, will prostrate themselves because of Adonai, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Here is what Adonai says. At the time when I choose, I will answer you. On the day of salvation, I will help you. I have preserved you. I have appointed you to be the covenant for a people, to restore the land, to distribute again its ruined inheritances to its owners, to say to the prisoners, come out to those in darkness. Show yourselves. They will feed along the paths. All the high hills will be their pastures. They will neither be hungry nor thirsty, neither scorching wind nor sun will strike them, for he who has mercy on them will lead them and guide them to springs of water. So the issues, you see, of living water and ending thirst directly connect, right there in Isaiah, to salvation and to the Feast of Tabernacles. Ah, but the connections to the earthly temple and to the Feast of Tabernacles don't end there. Because in Revelation 7.17 we read that the Lamb will lead them to springs of living water. Now listen to what Christ the Lamb said when he was attending Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, at the Jerusalem Temple. Apparently his final Sukkot before his death. In John 7.37-38 Now on the last day of the festival... Hoshana Rabbah, Yeshua stood out, stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him keep coming to me and drinking. Whoever puts his trust in me, as the scriptures say, rivers of living water will flow from his inmost being. Circles closed. You see all the connections now here in Revelation in this section to the Feast of Tabernacles. I am convinced that what we are witnessing in at least the last half of Revelation chapter 7 is the fulfillment in heaven of the prophetic Feast of Tabernacles. So let's move on now to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is page 1540. 1540. Revelation chapter 8, starting with verse 1. 
When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for what seemed like half of an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven shofars. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a gold incense bowl, and he was given a large quantity of incense to add to the prayers of all of God's people on the gold altar in front of the throne. And the smoke of that incense went up with the prayers of God's people from the hand of the angel before God. Then the angel took the incense bowl. He filled it with fire from the altar. He threw it down upon the earth. And there followed peals of thunder, voices, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels with the seven so shofars prepared to sound them. The first one sounded his shofar, and there came hail and fire mingled with blood. And it was thrown down upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. All the green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded his shofar. And what looked like an enormous blazing mountain was hurled into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his shofar. And a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky onto a third of the rivers, onto the springs of water. And the name of the star was Bitterness. And a third of the water became bitter, and many people died from the water that had turned bitter. The fourth angel sounded his shofar, and a third of the sun was struck, also a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. The day had a third less light, and the night Likewise, then I looked and I heard a lone eagle give a loud cry as it flew in mid-heaven. Woe, woe, woe to the people living on earth because of the remaining blasts from the three angels who have yet to sound their shofars. Okay. The first six seals of the scroll were opened in Revelation chapter 6. Then we had an interlude that is chapter 7. Now with chapter 8, the opening of the seven seals on the scrolls resumes. And assuming that what we had been reading is approximately chronological in order and understanding that some events could be happening in parallel, then here's how I interpret it. Sometime between the opening of the fourth and the sixth seals, the rapture of believers occurs. I cannot see the events of the first four seals as anything but human evil occurring on earth on an unprecedented scale. This is my definition of tribulation as we find it in the Bible. Egged on by Satan, but mostly because of mankind's own now unrestrained evil inclinations, we have injustice, we have civil chaos, we have wars around the world, which by their very nature bring on famine and pestilence. But none of these things can be legitimately categorized as God's wrath. 
the opening of the fifth seal only deals with God's wrath in a kind of peripheral a wrath rather in kind of a peripheral way that is God in, after opening the fifth seal God promises the martyred souls abiding under the heavenly altar that he will avenge their unjust murder just not yet and this vengeance will not be human evil perpetrated upon the murderers but rather it will be the result of God's wrath and then at the final judgment their ultimate destruction the sixth seal of Revelation chapter 6 spoke of a great earthquake and the moon turning blood red and the sun growing dark with stars falling from heaven other celestial phenomena that is not only frightening to all of humanity but also devastating to the planet earth that's the beginning of God's wrath and if we go by the biblical principle that we've seen since early on in Genesis then it is not imaginable that the Lord will pour out this wrath upon those who are innocent in his sight believers along with those who are guilty in his sight non-believers therefore the rapture of believers in my opinion must have occurred not later than the opening of the sixth seal now I realize that most, many if not most, very influential Bible scholars would disagree with me and I humbly accept that. Might I be wrong? Oh yeah. Yes. That said, obviously since I'm teaching it to you, uh, I'm convinced in my conscience that my rough timeline more faithfully follows Revelation as it is written as well as my basing some of my interpretation on difficult passages in the context of God's never changing patterns God patterns God patterns and we only learn about them in the Torah and the remainder of the Old Testament so the rapture of believers occurs possibly fulfilling Yom Teruah, the biblical feast of trumpets then Yom Kippur the day of atonement is fulfilled in some way that's not yet entirely clear although it may have something to do with the opening of the fifth seal that is neither directly inciting tribulation nor is it raining down wrath and then Sukkot the feast of tabernacles appears to be fulfilled in Revelation chapter 7. So to begin the next happening in sequence the seventh seal is opened with the result of an ominous silence in heaven we are told for what seemed like half an hour. Now silence in heaven this seems to mean that the constant praising of God and the Lamb temporarily cease. Because prior to this, 
The mention of sounds in heaven had to do with the 24 elders playing their golden harps and all creatures, we are told, great and small, singing their allegiance to and adoration of God and the Lamb. The only other sounds were of the four living beings ordering the four horsemen of the apocalypse to go and instigate chaos and havoc on earth. Biblically, God's wrath is usually initiated with some kind of sound from heaven. Very often it's thunder. And this too is absent. So what we have is sudden inactivity on multiple levels in heaven. It is the silence before the storm. I think the American expression I would liken this to is waiting for the other shoe to drop. Now saying the silence was for half an hour probably just means an undefined short time as well as something that's unexpected. See, this is not speaking about earth time. Half an hour is not a measurement of time. It's an expression. An hour in the Bible usually means the time is near. The hour has come. The time has come for something to occur. So half of that... That means that what is about to happen, man, it is super imminent. And it's going to be filled with surprise. And during this short time of silence in heaven, seven angels who stand before God are armed with what most uh, texts call trumpets. And indeed, that is the correct English translation of the Greek Saul picks. It is said in Messianic Judaism and in other non-mainstream quarters that this cannot be trumpets, it has to be speaking of shofars, ram's horns. A case could be made either way. Metal trumpets were used by the Levites for a ritual ceremony at the temple. However, when going into battle, it was not trumpets. It was shofars that were used. And since the angels are about to engage, and I think what we could call spiritual warfare, and behave as God's agents in, in carrying out his punishment of the earth, then it seems more likely than not that this is speaking of shofars and not metal trumpets. However, for the sake of not making things confusing, since the common way of speaking about these 21 judgments of Revelation is as the seven seal, the seven trumpet, and the seven bold judgments, we're just going to do the same. Just know that very likely the trumpets are actually shofars. Now, who are these seven angels who are said to stand before God? The Bible doesn't help us out very much on that. About the only named angel who stands before God is Gabriel. Right? And we read of him in, in the Gospels, in Luke, in Luke 1.19. I am Gophriel, 
Gabriel, the angel answered him, and I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you to give you this good news. So it's well attested from the most ancient times in Jewish literature that there were seven special angels assigned to stand in God's presence. Now I don't want you to put too much stock in that. All right? And I'm not even agreeing that what the Israelites believed about these seven special angels, angels is the truth. Yet I also cannot say that it's not. All right? At least it is worth knowing about it. Okay? Just be aware that the Jews developed a great deal of traditions about what we call angelology and demonology. And in reality, Christianity has adopted a great deal of it, even though very little of it is expressly biblical. So here we go. Jewish tradition is that these seven angels served God and their names more or less described their duties or maybe their areas of authority in heaven. Uriel means fire of God. Raphael means God has healed. Raguel means friend of God. Michael, who is like God. Sariel means prince of God. And Gafriel, God is my strength. Remiel means thunder of God. So if the Jewish sages don't have this correct, I really have nothing to add. All right, because we simply aren't given any more information about these seven angels and nothing is said of them in the Holy Scriptures. So take it out as however you would. Now each of these angels, we are told, was given a trumpet. I agree that I think it's likely a shofar, but they would use it to herald a, a specific woe. Then an eighth angel showed up. And he stood at the altar of incense. Again, we're talking about in heaven. Now, at the earthly temple, there were two altars. The altar of burnt offering where sacrifices were made. And the altar of incense where incense was burned to send up a sweet aroma for God to savor. Now, the smoke from the altar of burnt offering went up to heaven for God to know that his commandments were being met regarding atonement for sins as well as for things like thanksgiving offerings and vow offerings and first fruit offerings and free will offerings but the smoke from the incense altar that was said to carry the prayers of his people so this eighth angel was given a golden incense bowl as he stood at the heavenly altar of incense. And he was provided with a large quantity of incense in order to multiply the prayers of the people. Maybe it was to enhance their effect. The image here is of God himself assuring that those prayers would be divinely accepted and acted upon. 
However, if the rapture... Now think about this. If the rapture, by my timeline, has already occurred, and there's no believers, or an awfully few, left on earth, where are these prayers coming from? It could be prayers that were made and more or less stored up before believers were raptured away. It could be the prayers from the souls of the martyrs who earlier in verse seven, uh, rather verse nine, are said to be dwelling under the altar. And their prayers, their pleadings to God were for him to punish those who murdered them. I mean, I mentioned earlier that the Lord asked them to wait a little while longer. Perhaps that wait is up now. And now from that same altar, the prayers from those under it are supplemented by this powerful eighth angel who not only agrees with them, but is going to be the agent for carrying out God's justice upon these martyrs' murderers. That justice begins with God's wrath being poured out on the earth's unbelieving inhabitants. Now in somewhat of a reversal, the bowl that was full of holy incense that was meant to give the prayers of the people under the altar even more holiness, that would now be used to throw down destruction upon the earth. The angel is said to have taken fire from the altar and filled the bowl with fire. Here it's clear, not clear if this is speaking about fire from a different altar, the altar burnt offering in heaven, or the same one, the incense altar. Some say it must be the same altar because it's not reasonable to think that there would be animal sacrifices in heaven. Others say it has to be two separate altars because the mention of fire from the altar is only used to speak of the altar of burnt offering and other places in the Bible. I think it's more likely speaking of the same altar because the incense altar had fire on it. And since this entire matter involves an incense bowl along with prayers, it would make sense that incense fire would be used, not fire from an altar made for animal sacrifices. Either way, upon doing this, the sounds from heaven resume after their half an hour of silence. Peals of thunder, voices, lightning, and then an earthquake are said to be be the result from this incense bowl filled with holy fire being poured out on the earth. Peals of thunder and voices along with flashes of lightning as well as smoke that reminds us of Mount Sinai. Exodus 20, 15-16 All the people experienced the thunder, the lightning, the sound of the shofar, the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it they trembled, and standing at a distance they said to Moses You speak with us and we'll listen but don't let God speak with us or we're going to die No doubt all the people on earth are going to tremble from the sounds coming from the sky 
when this happens and be very afraid. So at this point in Revelation, the seven seals of the heavenly scroll have been opened. The seven so-called seal judgments have now all occurred. Now, the seven trumpet or shofar judgments begin. And the first of the seven angels of the presence blow his shofar. And hail and fire mingled with blood are now thrown down upon the earth. This is patterned after the plague of fire and hail that God sent upon Egypt. Exodus 9, 22-25 Adonai said to Moses, Reach out your hand towards the sky so that there will be hail in all the land of Egypt falling on people, animals, and everything growing in the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses reached out with his staff towards the sky and Adonai sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. Adonai caused it to hail on the land of Egypt. It hail and fire flashed up with the hail. It was terrible. It was worse than any hailstorm in all of Egypt since it became a nation. And throughout all the land of Egypt, the hail struck everything in the field and people and animals. And the hail struck every plant growing in the field and broke every tree there. So the result of the Egyptian judgment was localized where? To Egypt. Only to Egypt. But in Revelation, one third of the entire landmass of our planet will be burned up from hail that uncharacteristically bursts into flame when it hits the ground. One third of all the trees in the world burned up all the green grass that grows everywhere in one form or another destroyed. Notice that this judgment or woe it targets the dry land. And also notice that as terrible as the final two sealed judgments are, oh, the trumpet judgments are worse. And as we eventually get to the bowl judgments those are going to be the most horrific of all. Why might God keep increasing the awful effects of these judgments? Just as long ago in Egypt, very likely, it was to try to drive even the most stubborn into submission to him. But unlike in Egypt, God's hope is that submission will lead to salvation. So that those, even those who finally submit, will have to go through hell on earth caused by God's wrath. They won't have to live in hell for an eternity. It is inevitable that many of the survivors are going to believe and they're going to beg for mercy at some point within these catastrophic judgments. Many people will no longer be able to, do, to deny that all was prophesied thousands of years ago. Now it's happening, just as it's written. And yet many more 
will so harden themselves, just like Pharaoh did, that despite all their suffering and their afflictions, they would rather curse God for their troubles than seek Him for forgiveness and mercy. The second trumpet is sounded. And the sea, meaning the salt water, this is now afflicted with judgment. What looked like a blazing mountain is hurled into the sea with the results that one-third of the earth, the earth's seas turn to blood, so the corresponding sea life of those immediate waters dies out, and one-third of the ships operating nearby are destroyed. This is like the plague of blood that got sent upon Egypt that turned all the waters into a blood-colored, undrinkable mess. It killed the fish that the Egyptians relied upon. It caused a huge stench. Does this vision mean to imply literal blood or more that the water turns blood red? Very likely the latter. Again, like the Nile River Plague. It is fascinating to me that the pre-tribulation dispensationalist adherents and a few others of the various end times doctrine believers think that the mountain that is blazing that causes the catastrophes of the world's oceans is symbolic and is not literal. Rather, they take the term mountain to mean government. Therefore, according to them, this is about God judging the world economic system called Babylon and the subsequent sea life death is symbolic, just symbolic but it's symbolic of famine. The loss of ships is symbolic of world commerce collapsing. And the reason that this symbolic interpretation is favored is because symbolism and allegory are the basis for their interpretation of revelation in general. And such a method allows for end times timelines to be arranged in such a way is to make them workable and then their doctrines plausible. Now I certainly acknowledge, oh, there's an element of symbolism in Revelation, as there are in many, many Bible books. But that hardly leads towards assuming that every bit of information in the book is symbolic and not literal. I don't know what this blazing mountain might be. Maybe it's an enormous volcano. Maybe it's a large meteor. I don't know. Matter of fact, let me mention that the, the meteor possibility is something that is so worrisome that we have an entire government organization within NASA today dedicated to watching the solar system to detect any substantial hunk of space rock that might collide catastrophically with Earth. Something they say, by the way, is inevitable. But if we're going to take every instance of a mountain in the Bible as symbolism, meaning a government, then I guess Mount Sinai is symbolic of a government, and it isn't literal either. Now, I don't think what we are reading about the disasters of God's judgments are symbolic. They are literal 
even if the vision doesn't give us the kind of specifics or terms that we might use in the 21st century. Because guess what? This wasn't written in the 21st century. Rather, these are the best descriptions using the vocabularies and the word illustrations that are available to those who lived in these ancient cultures. Well, then the third angel blew his shofar. And the fresh water of the earth is assaulted. One third of the earth's rivers and springs and lakes are affected when something like a blazing star falls into them. This again sounds like a meteor, but of course it could be something else entirely. The blazing star is given the name bitterness, according to the complete Jewish Bible, or wormwood, according to most other major English translations. The Greek word is absinthos, and it means wormwood, or something which turns something bitter. So the idea is, of course, that fresh water becomes so contaminated, it's not usable. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23.15, Therefore, this is what Adonai Sebaot says concerning the prophets. I will feed them bitter wormwood and make them drink poisonous water. So while this Jeremiah passage might not be prophetic of this same event, it explains why the word wormwood is used in John's vision in order to describe the poisoning of a major portion of the earth's fresh water. Wormwood, in its effect, is a term that Jews were quite familiar with. One has to assume that this judgment, and probably the first two trumpet judgments, involves one particular large region of the earth as opposed to all regions of the earth, somehow each having one-third of their own fresh water supply ruined. Again, those doctrinal believers who refuse to take Revelation most literally say that stars are at times symbolic of angels. So this mention of a blazing star must be the, the judgment of a certain angel who represents the judgment of sinful people. I think this takes symbolism too far. And rather that whatever it is that comes from the sky and pollutes the fresh water is quite real. And the fresh water supply, so necessary for life, really is affected. And as one can imagine, water would become so scarce for some of our world population, they would no doubt try to drink it anyway. I mean, sailors that are set adrift have been known to drink, try to drink seawater. It just gets so bad, of course, it makes them violently ill. Or even perhaps some people will try some pretty risky means of purification. With the results, says verse 11, that many people are going to die from it. Well, we'll move on in chapter 8 next week and then get well into chapter 9.